So Sinclair Ferguson, who's one of my favorite theologians, and I have a quote for this, he says that the providence of God is the way in which he governs everything wisely, first for the glory of his own name, and second for the ultimate blessing of his children. In other words, God is active. God is active, and his activity is moving the world toward new creation. And we get to participate in that new creation by grace through faith when we submit ourselves to God and his word by entrusting ourselves to King Jesus. This is what Matthew has been getting at in these early birth narratives. And I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but he's been using Joseph as one of the primary ways to do so. As we've been working our way through these first two chapters, I didn't notice this at first, but I was struck at how Joseph really does take front stage in this entire thing. He never says a word, but his actions speak volumes. His actions speak volumes. See, Joseph shows up at the end of Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1. The camera then zooms in on him as we hear of his first encounter with an angel of the Lord, explaining to him why he shouldn't worry about Mary's unexpected pregnancy. We're then introduced to Herod and the wise man. So we kind of take a, a detour a little bit away from Joseph. But, but I, I imagine Joseph's in the background. We talked about this, how, how he welcomed, how his family, the Holy Family, welcomed the wise men into their homes to, to meet the baby Jesus. Joseph then has this second encounter with an angel of the Lord who warns him to leave Bethlehem and flee to Egypt. And finally, in our text this morning, Joseph experiences his final encounter with an angel of the Lord. And in each movement of the story, we see these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, all of which, and I thought this was fascinating as I was wrestling through these texts, all of which draw our attention to the promise of new creation. Almost every single Old Testament passage we looked at over the last couple of weeks are dealing in some way with the kingdom of God or new creation, which are really one in the same. And it's through the simple faith of Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth, who never questions but entrusts himself fully to the word of God. That's what we see. That's what takes place in these first two chapters. I don't have a New Year's sermon for us this morning. We're just going to continue along in the series. We're actually finishing our series, our Christmas series this morning. And next week we'll be jumping into the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, which will take us through till July. But this morning we're closing up these birth narratives. Like I said, I don't have a New Year's sermon. I'm not, I'm not that guy. I don't know. I just don't have one. If that is upsetting to you. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. It says this, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. 
that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So a couple of things pop out in this passage as we work our way through it. Notice that they're still in Egypt when Joseph is once again visited by an angel of the Lord. In verse 20, it says that the angel instructs Joseph to rise. And in verse 21, we see that Joseph's unquestioning obedience is that he rose. He just does it. There's no conversation. There's no like, well, what's going on? What should I do? He just gets up and goes. He hears the word of the Lord through the angel of the Lord, and he responds with faithfulness and obedience. Then there's this shift in verse 22. Joseph hears that Herod's son, Archelaus, was now reigning in Judea, and, and this scares him a little bit. Why? Because Archelaus was an erratic and violent leader. And so Judea was not safe for them. And so Joseph goes to Galilee, and he settles in a city called Nazareth. Now, the text isn't clear on whether Nazareth was where he was told to go in his dream or if he went there because it was familiar. We learn from Luke's gospel that Nazareth is Joseph's hometown. So, so I tend to think, I'm going I'm to go on a limb here, that Joseph went there because it was familiar. He knew this town. It was, it was his hometown. He, 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 he probably has people there. He's like, I'm just going to go there. See, this is more often than not how God works. He nudges us along using past experiences, knowledge, circumstances, all of which he wisely uses to providentially govern his creation. I'm not saying that God never intervenes in more miraculous ways. I believe he does, but... More often than not, it's through the normal, regular, mundane that God is kind of nudging us along. See, God is more of a behind-the-scenes sort of guy. Like I said, it doesn't mean that he doesn't actively intervene. I believe he does. We see that in this text, that he actively intervenes. But for some reason, I am convinced that his move to Nazareth was more of like, yeah, I'm going to go there. I, I know that place. On a side note, even when we think about how the Bible was put together, right now we're talking a little about the providence of God, just so we're all on the same page. We talk about the scriptures being the inspired word of God, that it has been breathed out by God. And what that means primarily is that God used the lives, knowledge, experiences, and abilities of particular people to communicate to us. And, and really, not even to us, but to, to a people, you know, a few thousand years ago. This book, it didn't fall out of the sky. It didn't fall out of the sky completed the way we have it. That's not how inspiration works. Now, are there situations where God directly spoke and the writers of Scripture wrote? Yes. But that is not the primary way God delivered his word to us. It was through these ordinary means that the spirit worked in the lives of people. And that's how he continues to work in the lives of people, moving us along based on our own knowledge, our own experience, our own abilities, is how providence works. You guys tracking with that a little bit? Is anyone kind of like, John, what are you talking about? Anyone there? If you are, great. If you're not there, that's wonderful. I bring that up because, because I want us to understand a little bit, because I think often as followers of Jesus, what, what we see often is people, like we're looking for like, like, like a flash in the, in the sky or some sort of big event to, to move us. And again, I'm not saying that big events don't happen, 
But I'm, not, but I'm saying that they're probably not the norm. And even the Bible, in the way it was put together, it wasn't this like, it's <laughs> not how it happened. It was regular people that God used their experiences, their knowledge, their abilities to bring forth his word. And the same way God uses our experiences, our knowledge to move us in the direction he wants us to go. That's why I believe Joseph ended up in Nazareth. Doesn't take God out of the equation. It just helps us to rethink a little bit how God works. Tracking? Cool, let's keep going. The text says that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that or in order that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So this is a purpose statement, right? I'm, I'm a little technical this morning. I don't know why I was excited studying this, this particular passage and I figured like let's do a little like hermeneutics lesson, right? So if you look in verse 23, it says he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that. See that little word that? That's a purpose statement in the scripture. That's, that's like what the, the main point of the text is driving us towards. It's what Matthew wants us to understand. It's like everything that's happening in verses 19 through 23 is driving towards this point. What's the point? That he would go to Nazareth. Why? So that he might fulfill the words of the prophets and be called a Nazarene. So a couple of things. God's providence and the faithfulness of his servant Joseph are all driving us toward this particular point. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Notice another thing. Notice that it says prophets, not prophet. That's important because there is nowhere in the Old Testament where we see the sentence, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's just not there. We were talking about this earlier, me and Scott Stangley, Brian McKay, and, and Scott actually said, I, where's this word that's not here? I'm like, funny you mention that. We're going to talk about that this morning. It's not there. It's not in the Old Testament. It's not in any, you know, apocryphal sort of writings either. So what's going on? What Matthew is communicating is not so much a specific word, but rather a prophetic theme that we're going to unpack in just a few minutes, a prophetic theme. Now, now, Nazareth. Let's talk a little bit about this particular town. Nazareth is sort of a backwoods town. Had little to no relevance in the ancient world. When Josephus was writing about Galilee and listing the, uh, the towns within Galilee, he doesn't even mention Nazareth because it has like less than 500 people who live there. Nathaniel, in John chapter 1, verse 46, when he hears that Jesus was from Nazareth, his response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, why are we talking about this backwoods, stupid little town? What's the purpose? It's got no meaning. It's like, like a random like, hotel on the side of the road or something. Like, it's like nothing happens there. Nothing important happens there. And so what is the point of the passage? God, through the voice of an angel and the faithfulness of his servant Joseph, providentially moves his son from Egypt to Israel and into the backwoods town of Nazareth to fulfill the words of the prophets. That's the point. What does that mean? Well, that's the question. What does it mean to be called a Nazarene? Like I mentioned just a minute ago, there are no verses in the Old Testament that say he shall be called a Nazarene. But there are a couple of things going on here that we need to pay attention to. A couple things. First thing, like we said, Nazareth was a place of obscurity. 
a nowhere town filled with nobodies. Think of the song Nowhere Man by the Beatles, right? That's the kind of situation we're dealing with. This brings into view a theme that emerges about the nature of who this Messiah is. We read in the book of Isaiah that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces like no one wanted to be seen with this guy. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We talk about this often. It's one of the most vivid New Testament pictures of Jesus we have, a seemingly unspectacular man marked by humility. A seemingly unspectacular man marked by humility. This is what Paul was getting at in Philippians chapter 2 when he wrote about the one who was in the form of God yet didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so from the moment of Jesus' birth to him dying a criminal's death on a cross, he was fulfilling the words of the prophets embodying the life of a Nazarene. Jesus was nothing spectacular to the common eye. He was nothing spectacular. He, he, He did not shine when he walked through the streets. He didn't float three inches above the ground. He was a regular guy from the Middle East, probably not very handsome, at least according to what we read in the scriptures. And people didn't even want to be seen with him. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. That's what Matthew is getting at when he says he shall be called a Nazarene. And we understand this, right? We understand that there are particular places where people are from where maybe they might be embarrassed of that, right? And even those of us who are from New Jersey, who have lived here all of our lives, in, 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 in the United States, New Jersey is known as what? The armpit of America, right? Now, I, 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 I resent that. I think this is a beautiful state. It's the garden state probably the most delicious tomatoes on the face of the planet next to, you know, the San Marzanos that come from Italy. Other than that, we win. But we are seen as like, kind of like New Jersey. Like, who wants to go to New Jersey? There's nothing in New Jersey. Good, stay out. Right? Good. We don't want you. But we, we kind of understand this. This is what it's like to be from Nazareth, from New Jersey. Now, I bet Nazareth, people from Nazareth, bet they were very proud. They're like, we're from Nazareth. Everyone's like, great. Who cares? Especially Nathaniel. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Right? But that's what's happening here. Right? From the cradle to the grave, Jesus embodies what it means to be a Nazarene. Humble. Nobody. Second thing that might be an echo of this particular passage. Some argue that there's a sense of holiness being referred to here. That the Nazarite vow is hanging around in the background. Nazarite vow is is a vow that people would take where they would not take a razor to their face. They wouldn't drink wine or strong drink. They wouldn't cut their hair. Um, I believe John the Baptist took the Nazarite vow. A couple other people in scripture take the Nazarite vow. And it's it's this this outward um, display of holiness. If this is the case, which is possible, then it's what scholars refer to as an echo. Because Jesus doesn't embody the, the, the particulars of the Nazarite vow. He does drink wine. It doesn't say ever that he took this vow in particular. But even so, 
This child, this one who is called a Nazarene, is also the Holy One of Israel. So it's quite possible that this is hanging around in the background a little bit. It's like, oh, this, this child, not only is he humble, but, but he's holy. He's humble, but he's holy. But there's more. Most scholars, and this is where I tend to land, although I kind of embrace all three of these views because I think there's something about Scripture where we can do that sometimes. We can be like, the ambiguity allows us to just say yes to a few more things. Most scholars argue that Matthew is using wordplay to draw our attention to another Old Testament theme. Again, I'm getting a little technical here, so follow me. The word natser means branch in Hebrew. And it sounds very similar to the Greek, the Greek word natsara, which is the word for Nazareth, and natsarios, which is the word for Nazarene. This is where we need to remember that Matthew is writing to whom? Who remembers who Matthew is writing to? A Jewish audience. Some of whom would have been familiar with Hebrew, and in particular, the promises of the Hebrew Bible. In other words, to be called a Nazarene is to be called a branch. And to be called a branch in the context of Judaism is to be associated with the promises of the new creation Messiah. What do I mean? The three primary places this theme shows up is in Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Isaiah. And while all of these might be in the mind of Matthew, as he's writing, most scholars argue that Isaiah 11 is the most prominent. So if you have your Bibles, jump with me to Isaiah 11. And let's take a look at what's going on here. It says this, in Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a, what's it say there? A branch from, its, from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We're going to read more in just a few minutes, but I want to point out a few things. Jesse, in verse 1, was, the, was King David's father. And Matthew's gospel begins with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. In other words, Matthew is again identifying Jesus as the Davidic Messiah, the rightful king of Israel. Verse 2 says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The text then further elaborates on the nature of his, this Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Now a careful reader of Matthew will notice that right after Matthew 2 comes what? Matthew 3. And what happens in Matthew 3, it's Jesus' baptism. And what happens at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit of the Lord rests upon Jesus. And so what Matthew is doing, and this is why I'm so convinced that Isaiah 11 is in his mind, is that he's retelling that story of Isaiah 11, only he's kind of stretching it out a little bit. He's stretching out a bit. He shall be called a Nazarene, means he is the branch of Jesse, the one that rises up out of that stump Israel that was just chopped down, 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 down to nothing, 
And then out of nowhere emerges the promised Messiah, the new Israel, the first breath of new creation. That's what's going on here. And so when Matthew says that he did all this to fulfill the words of the prophets, he's saying that the Messiah is this humble, holy promise of the Davidic king. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that new creation is now bursting on the scenes in this child, in this backwoods town of Nazareth. Despised and rejected by men. We esteemed him not. But you know what else it says? It also says that this branch, if you notice in verse 1, what does this branch do? This branch bears fruit. This branch bears fruit. We're going to get to that in just a second. I want to read through the rest of this particular passage, verses 6 through 9 in Isaiah 11. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Has that happened yet? No, that hasn't happened yet. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. We see that happening? No, that's not happening. That's still, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Lions don't eat straw. I mean, any National Geographic episode I've seen, lions aren't eating straw. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. I'm a dad. I'm I'm not allowing that to happen. I'm sorry, I don't trust the cobra yet. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord and as the waters cover the sea. Why am I not comfortable allowing my children to play with cobras? Because new creation is not fully realized yet. That's the point. This is a future sort of event. But we've talked about this with prophecy, right? Like there's the already and then there's the not yet. The already and the not yet. The already is that, yeah, this This root of Jesse, this branch, it arrived on the scene in the person of Jesus. The Natser, the one who hails from Nazareth, the Nazarene, the holy, humble one of Israel. He arrived, he did his work, but the rest of the story has not yet been fully realized. We are living in the midst of it, We're, 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 we're heading toward that, but we're not there yet. And so this is sort of like a a double kind of prophecy that's happening in Isaiah 11. It's like, yes, Jesus has arrived, the Messiah has arrived, but new creation is not yet fully realized. But that doesn't mean that new creation is, is absent from our lives. Because every single one of us, if we've bent our knee to King Jesus, if we've submitted ourselves to the word of God, the Bible says something about us. What does it say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. A new creation. Why? Because the, because the branch does what? It bears fruit. The branch bears fruit. And so Matthew's entire introduction of Jesus, as we look at verse, chapters 1 and 2, it revolves around new creation. Every allusion to the Old Testament is pointing out these, to these ancient Jewish readers that everything that they had been waiting for had arrived in this child. This seemingly unremarkable nobody from nowhere is the Holy One of Israel, the Christ, the King who will ascend to the throne of David and his kingdom will be marked by humility and self-giving love. And this branch, it bears fruit. 
This branch bears fruit. Turn with me to John chapter 15. Now, the language is a bit different here. But what we find in John 15 and in other passages that are similar to it is the personal nature of this new creation or eternal life. The personal nature of this new creation or eternal life. Now, remember the nature of God's providence. We talked about this. The providence of God is the way in which he governs everything wisely, first, for the glory of his own name, and second, for the ultimate blessing of his children. First, it is for the glory of his name, and second, it is for our blessing. And that blessing is wrapped up in the fact that we become participants in the new creation story. We become participants in the new creation story. Let's read through John chapter 15. It says this. Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And now he starts to talk about what this fruit looks like. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. May be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command to you so that you will what? Love one another. Now, we don't have time to fully unpack this passage. We just don't have it because there's like three sermons in here, easily. But a couple things stand out. First, this passage begins with the seventh I am statement of John's gospel. These are statements where Jesus identifies himself as Yahweh, but that's not where I want to hang out this morning. What's important is that Jesus serves as the fulfillment of both the branch and the vine metaphors of the Old Testament. Now, branch in this context is different from Isaiah. It's different. I'm not going to sit here and and do like a bait and switch. These aren't exactly tied to one another, but they are parallel metaphors. They are very similar to, to what is trying to be communicated. And so the branch being the line of David and the vine being Israel, and guess what? Both represent colossal failures. They just do. Right? We read through the Old Testament and we see failure after failure after failure. One author says it like this. Jesus is the obedient shoot. 
Jesus is the beginning of a whole new planting by the Lord. Jesus is the one who will give to God the harvest that he deserves. He is of Israel. He is Israel. And he is more than Israel. So what we see Jesus getting at as he unpacks this truth about himself is that this idea of being in, in, in union with the vine, us being these branches, if we abide in Christ, if we abide in the vine, if we make ourselves so connected to the vine, what is going to happen is that we are going to start bearing fruit because that's how gardening works. We're going to start bearing fruit. And the kind of fruit that we bear is what? Love. It's love. Every single time, it's love. We see it so clearly. I mean, the word love shows up so many times here. Like, just, just walk through John 15 and just circle love, and you'll see it shows up so many, it's just constant. It's like love, 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 love. It's like, it's like okay, like, Jesus, relax. We get it. But we don't get it. Because we constantly want to buck it. We constantly want to do it differently. We constantly want to, want to, want to exert power and, and might and all these things that Jesus is just like, that's not what it means to be a Nazarene. That's not what it means to be a Nazarene. Calm down. That's not what it means to be a Nazarene. I don't win that way. Right? How does Jesus win? He wins by losing. Right? That's the story. He wins by losing. He wins by dying. That goes against everything we are as, as humans, as Americans, right? Like, we, we like to fight, right? Like, we're fighters. We love movies like Rocky and Braveheart, and, and we do. We love those movies. But that's not the way of the cross. It's just not. It's just not the way of the cross. See, the entryway into this new creation project is love. And it's the sort of love that is cross-shaped. It's that self-sacrificial love that puts the needs of others above our own. It is a love that began with the Father, was carried out by the Son, and has been gifted to us by grace through faith. And now we are called to be the branches that are so nourished by the vine that we start to look like it. So nourished by the vine that we start to look like it. And so the question is, how do, we, how do we allow ourselves to be nourished by the vine? How do we abide in Christ? Right? We talked about this over the summer, that, that, that series on spiritual formation. That's one of the ways, right? Practicing those disciplines. It's also like what Joseph did. It's responding to the word of God with unquestioning obedience. And so when God says, love your neighbor, we don't hem and haw, right? We say, okay, okay, how, how, right? We don't need like a big sign in the sky to tell us, love your neighbor. You wanna know why? It's right here. It's all over the book. It's like almost on every page of the book, minus judges. Um, that was a Bible joke. Everywhere. This is what it means to bear fruit. This is what it means to abide in Christ. It's to start looking like the vine. 
It's to embody that great commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our strength, with all of our might, with all of our heart, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You know what's interesting when, when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment? He says, he says, love the Lord your God, and then he says, and there's one just like it. There's one just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the language, it, 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 almost, it almost begs us to think like these are, these are equivalent commandments, which is like, wait, what? I need to love people the same way I love God? Jesus is kind of like, well, yeah, kind of, sort of. Like, that's what I said. There's one just like it, he says. And, and the language means just like it. Because right? sometimes we want to like, look, well, what, what does the Greek say? Well, the Greek says there's one just like it. That's what it says. I don't know. I'm not a scholar saying that. I'm just saying that's what it says. And so, so, so the message of, 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 of new creation if we're going to participate in it, if we're going to be a, about it, it's love. It's self-giving, sacrificial love for God and neighbor. It's what it is. And I think we all know what it looks like. I don't think I need to go through a list like, and so with your neighbors, you do this, and with your friends, you do this. And with your, I don't think I need to do it because I think we all know. I think we actually look for ways not to do it. Not because we're horrible people, mostly because we're tired, mostly because like, we're busy. Like, there's plenty of reasons why, and I can give you all my reasons. I have like, a list of why like, I'm just not in the mood to, to love the Lord our God and to love my neighbor. I can give you all the reasons. Not because I'm a horrible person, because I'm exhausted. Right? How many of you are exhausted, especially after the last couple weeks? We're tired. But Jesus says to walk in this, to walk in love, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God, to sacrifice on behalf. of. And so, so maybe this is a, a New Year's message. And maybe, maybe the, the New Year's resolution that we all need to, to hold one another to is, is are we abiding in the vine? Are we submitting ourselves to the word of God? Are we reading this book? Are we allowing ourselves to be challenged by the people in our community so that we might love better and love more? All right, like that's, I mean, that's a good New Year's resolution. I, I'm, I'm losing, losing spots here. Where am I at? The Bible says that those of us who are in Christ are new creations. When we examine the nature of new creation throughout both the Old and New Testaments, what we learn is that new creation is marked by humility and love. It is marked by a loosening of chains, a lifting up of the poor, a peace that envisions enemies sitting with one another in peace, wolves and lions, babies and snakes. And so as followers of Jesus, as those who have been gifted with the presence of new creation through the person of the Holy Spirit, we are, now in call to, we are now called to embody the nature of the new creation, to be a source of love, peace, and grace. We are conduits of new creation because of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And this is what it means to bear fruit, to love as Jesus loved. Joseph was used by God to usher in the first fruits of the new creation story. God providentially sets the table and Joseph submits himself to the word of God. We too must have our eyes open to the providence of God in our lives, where we see the hand of God, and, and, and then we need to ask, are we willing to respond in obedience? Are we willing to respond in obedience? I once read a book on the Holy Spirit, 
And there was one thing that stood out to me in the entire book. I don't remember anything else from it. But it said, if, if you have this thought to do something good, just do it. Just do it. That might be the Holy Spirit nudging you along. Right? If you have this thought to do something good, just do it. Right? Because you're not going to regret doing something good. Just not. And so I just found that to be super helpful. I don't always follow that advice. There are plenty of times, like I said, where I'm tired, I'm busy, I'm overwhelmed, where it's like, yeah, I know that's good, but like, I'm not going to do it. Right? We've done it. We've, we've all been there. And, and that doesn't mean you should do every single good thing that you see, right? That's not, like, it's, if, if you think you should do it and it makes sense, right? Like, it's not going to like, like, I'm not going to like not see my family for six weeks to do something good because, because the better good is to be with my family, right? Like, there, there's wisdom involved, but generally speaking, if you have this desire to do something good, do it. See what happens. See what happens. Abide in the vine. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace, Lord. And I do pray um, for this church as we enter into this new year, Lord God. Give us grace. Give us wisdom. Help us to walk in faithfulness, to love you, to serve you, to honor you, to love, serve, and honor our neighbors, those who, who are, are connected to this church, those who are not connected to this church, whatever the case may be, Lord, wherever we find ourselves. Guide our paths, Lord God. Help us to to see the writing on the wall, Lord, that we might walk in faithfulness and obedience. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.